Talking back. back. Welcome to Decision, Decision Space, Space, the only show to take place right here in the space between the turns in your favorite games. I'm Jake and Friedman, I'm Brendan Hansen, and this is the podcast about decisions in games. Today we are talking about Cartographers, a game that many would call the best roll and write slash flip and write slash whatever and write game of all time. Uh, it's going to be a great discussion. We're going to talk about scoring mechanisms. We're going to talk about coloring with colored pencils or your phone on a tablet or whatever else you have handy. Uh, and I can't wait to dive in. Brendan, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Jake. I, mine, I've been playing a ton of games. I, we've been playing a lot of cartographers on our Discord. I'm just doing really well. How are you? Pretty well. It's been a really frantic week for me. We were without heat for a while, but now we have heat again. Uh, which let me tell you is like a huge wow. improvement in quality of life when it's winter in St. Louis, I'm Missouri. Sure every day when I was checking in with you, I was like, he must have they must have heat by now. And then every day you would say, Nope, still don't have heat. And I was like, How could this be? Felt so bad for y'all. So I'm glad to hear heat as well. Oh. Yeah, it wasn't I mean, it wasn't that bad. We had a space heater. We weren't like freezing to death or anything, but it just made it a little bit harder to do everything, like especially like getting out of bed in the morning when it's just like freezing cold in your house. It's brutal. (laughs) (laughs) Well, before we get in too deep, we should let our pre planners know that we will be covering in the next two. The next two games we'll be covering our broom service uh, by Alexander Pfister. And then following that, A Feast for Odin. So two highlights coming at you very shortly. Really looking forward to those. Get your mead glasses ready. I I feel like a a nice glass of mead works well for A Feast for Odin and somehow fits in broom service as well. Um, You can just throw a potion in there and call it good. I'm really excited for both of those games. Jake, I think they're going to be incredible episodes. Today, we are going to be talking about cartographers. But that's a little bit of a bait and switch because before we do that, we're bringing back our What's On your mind segment. Brendan, what is on your mind this week related to board games? So, well, before we were recording, we got set up. Jake said, you're not going to talk about one of those horrible Kadizia tiling games you overrate, are you? And I said, you bet I am. So recently, I have acquired Babylonia, a 2019 game from Reiner Kadizia. They, a lot of people would say sort of settles into this new trilogy of tile laying games. So Reiner Knizia is really famous for his three original games, uh, Tigris and Euphrates, uh, Through the Desert, and Samurai, which a lot of people view as this sort of trilogy that came out in the 90s that espoused his whole design philosophy. And he's updated all of them and brought them into new versions, sort of remixed, uh, and really games of their own, but inspired by the designs of these previous games. Um, so there's Yellow and Yangtze, which re- is a retake on Tigers and Euphrates. Blue Lagoon, which I love, a retake on Through the Desert. And then you have Babylonia, uh, this game that I think started with saying, I'm going to make something kind of like Samurai, and ends up being the synthesis of all these different types of Knizia games. I'd love for Jake and I to be able to cover this on the show, but really quickly, I'll give an overview and my quick thoughts. Mai and I have played five games so far. So in Babylonia, There are ziggurats, cities, and farms crossed all over the board. And the whole game, you're going to be placing these 30 tiles made up of uh, about roughly half of them are farmers, and the other half roughly are these nobles made up of three different types. Um, Every turn, you play two tiles to the board, except if they're farmers, you can play as many farmers as you have. So, And then you fill your hand back up to five. So 
there's kind of this tension of playing out and you're trying to get points from ziggurats and from cities and from farms and like all good games fraught with tension interesting decision spaces you're trying to figure out how to do all those things at the same time as efficiently as possible uh ziggurats when they're fully surrounded you get points for placing next to them but when they're fully surrounded you get special powers that change the way that you can play the game very fresh for knizia um fun to see the city score when they're totally surrounded by players uh tokens so there's lots of tension there and those score in an interesting way where you basically get points for every city depicts uh different types of tiles of those nobles and you get points for how many of those symbols you have connected to the city um, but the trick is, is that if you have a chain of symbols that stretches across the whole board, one city could potentially score all of your tiles. So obviously your opponent isn't going to let you, well, maybe they will, but they probably won't let you try to connect your entire board together and maximize these points off the cities. But also whoever has the more tiles around a city when it's scored gets to take those cities. And every time cities score, you also score a point for every city you already have. Um, which creates this really interesting tension where you have to score cities early because if there becomes too big of a disparity between you and your opponent in terms of cities scored, you're just going to fall behind on points because every time you score a city, you're showering with the, them with points. And then finally, there's farmers, which like you just get tons of points and you can play tons of tiles and it's really fun. I love Babylonia. I think it's an incredible game. Uh, Maya and I have played five games, like I said. Um, she was not really excited to try this one. She sort of saw the board and was like, this is not for me. And five games in, we were sitting down to lunch. And she's like, can you just take your turn? It's been like six hours. Like, why haven't you taken your turn yet? Um, it's camping out on our table. I'm really excited to explore this game more. I think it could potentially be uh, my favorite Reiner Knizia game. Um, Wow. We'll see. We'll see. I love modern art. I love so many of Reiner Knizia's games. But this game, it's just this incredible synthesis of so much Knizia. I think I've said enough. It sounds really fun. And I've heard it described as, I don't know if it's a pejorative or if it's a compliment, but it's like Knizia's like point salad mm. game where you're just getting like points falling out of the air. I love points. Though I just get triggered whenever I see like, you have a hand of X tiles. Mm. It's like, no, like I want a hand of cards. Those tiles are really <laughs> fun to play with though. I will say I was sort of clinking them around like poker chips. I think you'd like these if you got to play with them on the table. They're not cardboard. They're nice wooden tokens that are painted. Oh, yeah, that's kind of nice. Yeah, they, they are. They're, they're gorgeous tokens. The art design is kind of all over the place in the game, which if we revisit this in an episode in the future, which we might, we could get into. But yeah, it does shower you with points. That's one thing that caught me off guard. I was like, what the heck? Everything I do, I'm just getting showered with points on points on points. But it feels, it does feel great. And as you'd expect from Knizia, if he's going to make a game that way, it's implemented well. It feels exciting. It feels fair. It's it's really, really, really good. Cool. Well, let's definitely table that. I know that Tigris and Euphrates is a game that we will certainly be covering on this show at some point in the future. So we'll probably be able to bring in uh, more of your recent experiences with uh, Babylonia when we do that. For me, Brendan, I got a chance to play the brand new Libertalia by Stonemeyer Games. It's coming out uh, in 2022. I think it's coming out, you know, imminently. And I should say I had, uh, I was given a copy by uh, Jamie and Stonemeyer Games. So thank you so much for that copy. And this game is really fun. I So I've only played it once. It was at a game night. Um, and it was a four-player game. So I don't have any experience with the uh, previous iteration of this design. So, you know, I can't really comment on the improvements or changes or, you know, 
drawbacks to, for what was changed at all. So this was like my first experience with it. And what I will say is when I was learning the rules of it, I was kind of getting this a little, a little bit of like a sinking feeling because I thought like this game is so not for me. Mm. Uh, it reminds me a lot of Mission Red Planet, which is a game that I just bounced off of super hard. Basically, everybody is picking a single card from their hand to play. Uh, and then based on what other people play, uh, the value of your card, each card will trigger in order from like the lowest value card to the highest value card. So it's a game where you have to really pick your spots about all kinds of circumstances come up where you'll play your high valued card, but because people play lower value card that manipulate the game state in such a way uh, that means like you just wasted your whole action. And that's something that just like constantly happened in Mission Red Planet. And what's really cool in Libertalia is that the cards activate twice mm. in any given round. So there's like a daytime phase where uh, cards will activate from the low number value to the high number value mm. first. And then in the second phase, it will go from the high valued cards to low value cards. Uh, and in the second phase, you'll be able to take one tile from the loot. Every kind of round in the game simulates a day where you play a crew to your ship and then you get loot from an island wherever you are. So the highest value cards get to get loot first. And you're when you're collecting loot, you're collecting uh, sets. And some, there's just like all kinds of different values of loot ranging from like really good for you to actively bad, um, costing you points. So I really enjoyed that about the game where you could be a lot more sure when you were taking your turn, at, at least about some aspect of when you know what you were getting to do in the day period or the later the evening period um and that was really nice like i felt like when i was playing this game like i could truly be strategic in what i was trying to do the way i, I would sequence my cards to sort of maximize the value of them uh which i could not do at all in miss and red planet so it felt like it was really striking this nice balance between somebody who really enjoys uh, the strategy aspect and, and kind of like the tactical playing of cards. And also you can't really get around from the fact that there's like tremendous amounts of player interaction between like when you get to activate your cards. Uh, and, and there is definitely ways you can manipulate, like, you know, the loot that would be available or even uh, you could potentially assassinate somebody's crew member before they're able to take loot. Um, and yeah, it was just a really fun experience. So I'm I'm really excited for other people to get their hands on this game and especially people that have uh, more experience with the first Libertalia because um, I'm just really curious if, if people generally will feel like this is an improvement. My anticipation is that a lot of people are going to really enjoy That's awesome. This. I also love these games with uh, simultaneous action selection. So it's one I'm really intrigued by too. And the the vibrant sort of tropical look and visual design of the game is so starkly juxtaposed to the original version of Liber Libertalia, which came out in 2012. And it's just a lot grittier and darker. And I think having that sort of brighter feel might set the mood at the table in a way that would benefit the play experience. I haven't played the original, but it's it's beautiful. Also, I'll mention that this is a Paolo Mori game. Uh, people love Paolo Mori's designs like Ethnos and Dogs of War and Pandemic Fall of Rome and Blitzkrieg. So this is one of the early really big hits for Paolo More. So one I'd love to experience. I think this game would speak to you a lot, Brendan, based on what I know of your taste. And, oh, and the other thing I really loved about it, have you played Karuba? I have not played Karuba. Okay, so Karuba is this really cool tile lane game where uh, you have 
one randomized set of tiles and then somebody will draw that a tile off the randomized set and then everybody will place that tile. So they'll say like, okay, it's the number 17 tile and everybody will find that tile and place it. This does the same thing uh, where you have one randomized deck mm. of crew cards and uh, you'll at the beginning of each round, you'll draw a certain number of them and then everybody will get those same cards. So you're always working with the same uh, set of inputs as everybody else. So you, you'd be like, okay, we have the card five, seven, 19, so on and so forth but then you don't use all those cards in a round. So you would carry over two unused cards into the next round. So you can kind of curate your hand by the end of the game in what you don't use. So while it starts out, everybody's on the exact same page, it slowly creates more uh, variability between what people have in their hands. And it's kind of a really fun mental arithmetic where you're like, I think I have the highest card at the table, but I can't remember for sure if somebody else didn't play their 39 yet or whatever. Uh, so I thought that was like a really, really fun aspect of the. Yeah, that sounds game. awesome. Let's get into the meat of the topic. And, you know, hopefully if you don't care about our thoughts on, on recent experience with games, you can always just skip right ahead to the timestamp. So today we are talking about cartographers and we're going to do our traditional deep dive into this game. So Cartographers is a game designed by Jordi Aiden, published in 2019 by Thunderworks Games, uh, which has also published games like Skullcallo and Roleplayer. So this is sort of in the Roleplayer cinematic universe <laughs> as it is. Uh, this game plays from one to uh, technically unlimited players, like so many other uh, flip and write or roll and write style games. Everybody will be sharing the exact same input. Uh, and then fill out their board from there. Um, and the game, well, I guess we forgot, Brandon. We, we should have done our rating. <laughs> I'm no, sorry. You're I'm good. just all over the place this episode. Let's do it now where we'll share our ratings and slogan for this game. Why don't you? That was an first? excellent place to do it, as good as any. And I'll say that Cartographers is delightful. Part of the joy of Roland Rights for me always has lived in that tactical bliss spawned from drawing something real in the course of play, or at least something that feels like a real physical part of the game's world. Uh, Cartographer's mimetic map drawing quality is fantastic, and the decisions layered on top of that and within the game are interesting and dynamic and fun. With that said, though, Jake, some of the games of Cartographer's that I've played just kind of feel like they fall flat for me. Um, like waking up on the wrong side of the bed, a poor pairing of decree cards or a weird shuffle can really sour decisions often offered in cartographers, which means it's a game I thoroughly enjoy most plays at least eight out of 10, but it's a really good game. I like it nice. a lot. I do like yeah, it a that's lot. A, wow. Okay. Yeah. That's like a way higher rating than I thought you were going to give it based on uh, your I, slogan. So you had me I going it's there. grasping for greatness and it's just those sour plays that pull it down. So it, I, I love this game. I just wish it was a 10 out of 10 for me. What do you think? Awesome. About? Yeah, I feel very similarly to you. I think this is a delightful game. Like there's something you can't, you can't get away from the fact that like drawing on a piece of paper with colored pencils or, you know, we've been playing a lot on our phone. So I'm like using my photo editor app to uh, create this little yeah. map. It's just really fun. Uh, I think we've used the word delightful like multiple times. It's, and that really sums up the experience of playing this game. But at the same time, to me, it feels like a little bit, and this is going to maybe come across as harsh uh, because I really have enjoyed my plays, but it feels like a little bit of like junk food mm. 
in terms of the play where I just don't know how deep it goes, you know, and it, it really does strike me as quite a straightforward game uh, compared to many that we've covered on the on the podcast recently. So, yeah, there, there are things I love about it. There are things I don't like about it. And at the end of the day, just because of like the delightful quality, it's one I like don't think I would ever refuse a game of. It's one I would still like to show people. But, you know, it's it would never be my a game that I would like choose to bring out uh, over all others. So I think all that taken together, it puts it right at like a 7 mm-hmm. or a 7.5. I'll give it a 7.5. You know, I think it's better than just a good game. It's a game I'd always play, but it's not one I nice. love. Yeah, definitely. So let's jump right into your rules overview uh, to give people a better idea of how to play. And then we'll get right back into our deep dive discussion. Cartographers is a flip and write game played over the course of four rounds called Seasons. In Cartographers, each player has a personal map sheet and a pencil. Armed with these tools, players fill in their maps with different shapes depicting four types of terrain as they chart the land over the course of the game. At the start of each turn, a card is flipped. This card depicts two options for the player to choose from, one of which they must use their pencil to draw somewhere on the grid of their map sheet. These cards come in two different types, one that dictates a shape that must be added to your player board and gives an option to pick between two types of terrain that you're drawing that shape with, or the other, which dictates a type of terrain and an option of two different types of shapes that you can pick between to add to your board, a larger one and a smaller one. In the latter case, if players choose the smaller shape, players also gain a gold. To collect gold, players simply tally a space on their gold track. Gold scores at the end of each round, so gold collected in round one will score four points over the course of the game, gold collected in round two will score three points over the course of the game, and so on. Each player's personal map sheet shows a number of mountain spaces as well. If these spaces are ever enclosed, meaning they're orthogonally surrounded by chartered shapes, then the player also earns a gold. Occasionally, special cards will be flipped from the deck. For example, temples might come up, which force the subsequently flipped card to be placed over a temple on the player's map sheet if possible, and ambushes are another card type lurking in the deck. When these cards are flipped, there's a monster attack. Players pass their sheet to the player to their left or right, who then adds a shape to their opponent's board depicting monsters, and they can choose to do this wherever they would like. At the start of each round, every empty space on a player's board that's orthogonally adjacent to a monster space scores negative one point. At the start of each game, four scoring cards are revealed, each of which provides an objective tied to terrain or filling in the player's map in a specific manner. For example, Sentinel Wood provides one point for each forest space adjacent to the edge of the map. Each scoring objective is scored twice, and two are scored each round, which adds strategic depth around planning for objectives to come. At the end of winter, the game's fourth round, the player with the most points is crowned the victor. Thank you, Brendan. And I have a good feeling that your rules overview will be able to teach people almost everything that they would need to just pull out and play this game right off the bat because it is that straightforward. I think I almost taught the whole game. I left a few things out, but uh, I think it's for the most part all there. I think before we jump into the total discussion, Jake, I want to give a quick, short backstory on Cartographers of my experience with it, which is just that this is the last game I bought before quarantine started in the pandemic, Um, like right in the beginning of March, uh, what feels like half a decade ago. So I personally have a really warm experience and memory of this game, though I also have the experience of our joy of playing it 
for the first few weeks and then just slowly feeling more and more sad and alienated and depressed and drifting away from the game. So I was really excited that we decided that we covered it on the show that we because it's sort of been this return to it for me um, in a way that's reminded me of the joy that is in this game. Um, and I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, no, thank you for sharing that. I think it is interesting. And then that does kind of place it for a lot of people where it was, uh, you know, that 2019 uh, time period where this game was getting a ton of hype and play is sort of really mm. one of the games of the year. I mean, a lot of people are loving this game. And is it in the top 100 on BGG? I mean, this is a highly uh, regarded game by you know the bgg community i'm pulling it up right now it is so close uh, in terms of bgg rankings uh it's sitting at 110 as of the recording of this podcast which i think really also just speaks to the broad audience that this game has adopted i think anyone who's vaguely interested in roll and rights is interested in or has decided that cartographers isn't for them yes definitely well let's jump into our characterization of the decision space in this game and let's start with the type and you know i feel like in the past few episodes we've had games that are really straddling the few or difficult to locate i don't think that's the case here uh to me cartographers is very clearly or almost like the epitome of a waning decision space uh you start out with a whole board that's wide open to you um of course you know Many of these are going to be choices, right? Not full-on decisions in that you, you you would never pick just any place based on the scoring conditions. But generally, you are afforded tons of options. And over the course of the game, your map will dwindle down. You'll have fewer possible locations. And you'll also have fewer uh, uh, opportunities to score, meaning you'll care less about certain features on your board. Over I think the that of the game. one thing that struck me when I was thinking about how we were going to characterize this game's decision space on the show, and yeah, I, of course, I completely agree it's a waning decision space, um, is that typically when we've discussed waning decision space games, Jake, we've talked about how they're so good at fostering this dramatic sense of tension as your decisions get tighter and more constricted and more constricted. And for whatever reason, I don't feel that in cartographers as much as I do in a lot of other waning decision space games. I find that because of the planning, the way the decree cards work, uh, the scoring cards, you score them each twice and you score two of them each round. So you know what goals you're going to be scoring in what rounds. The one uh, In the round one, you score A and B. In round two, B and C. In round three, C and D. And in round four, D and A. So I think because of the way that the planning happens... Um, and the way that it's so clear what you will be scoring, a lot of that tension that you'd expect sort of disappears. And then on the front side of the board, uh, every sheet of cartographers has two sides. There's one version that's a completely open grid. And then there's another that has a ravine in the middle that cramps things up a little bit. I think even especially on the front side of the sheet uh, and even a little bit on the back, I don't feel the tension around making sure my pieces get in there in part because the mechanic of... Uh, if you can't place whatever is flipped, you get to fill in a hole with just one space can be turned into an upside. Um, so generally, I feel like if I'm in that position, I've planned for it and kind of leaned into creating that in a way that, yeah, the tension of this waning decision space just isn't there. So it wanes, but not in a way that I think feels fraught. Yeah, that's such a good point. And I, it, it, I think that mechanic specifically, the fact that if you can't place you get to put one cube of anything 
a one by one square, I should say, in your grid with anything, is is so often an advantage that you really don't care. Um, and especially, right, and the only time that would ever come up is in the last round. And that's when you care the least about taking up space because you know there's only yeah. two scoring conditions left. And so many of the uh, cards that will come out at that point in the game might just not have the type of landscape feature on it that you care about at all. So it's just much better to be able to draw a one by one square. Uh, and based on the scoring conditions, like that could be, that could generate like four or five points for you uh, by placing the specific type of feature in the specific square that you, you very well may want it. And the fact that there have these negative ambush cards where if you can't place those uh, instead of negative points, you'll be getting positive points it's like it's huge so yeah it, it i totally agree with you if it would have a very different feeling to the game if not being able to play something just meant like not being able to place it or not being able to completely put in an ambush card means like you could do as much of that ambush as possible that would create a game with a very different type of waning decision space i'm not saying that that would be better I, you know i don't i haven't thought about that <laughs> I, I don't necessarily think it would be better, um, but it is interesting pointing out how different the feeling is by that small uh, Definitely. gameplay. Team. I also feel like, Jake, there's this interesting tension in cartographers where we've talked about games in the past, right? Where there's games that really clearly want you to know your odds of anything within its randomizing element, right? A deck where the design goes out of its way to say, these are all the cards in the deck, so you can have a vague sense of what your chances are of and your probabilities of certain cards coming out at certain points. There's other games that really go out of their way to obfuscate that. And I think Cartographers doesn't, to me, feel like it wants you to know, and it also doesn't want to obfuscate. The cards are designed in such a way that you, the more you play, the more you have a sense for every shape that could come up in every type of train, because there aren't that many cards in its deck. Um, but it, I also feel like the game is somewhat tailored and designed in a way where even if you don't know that, it's not too punitive, which I, I, for me puts it in this weird space where to play this game really, really well, I should just sit down and I should study the deck and I should have a really strong sense for every type of uh, card that could come out, every shape in every train. It wouldn't take me that long to memorize, but I don't, I don't want to do that. I don't think that that sounds particularly fun. It's not how I would like to approach cartographers. And I think that puts the game in this weird in-between space where mastery requires memorization in a way that turns me off towards the lighter nature of this game. I don't know. It's not a huge thing, just something that kind of came across my mind as we were playing it more and more these past few weeks. No, I'm glad you said that. And I think that speaks tremendously to the feel and and the clarity of playing this game, uh, of making decisions in a game of cartographers, because every choice that you make in the game is only a good or bad decision based mm. on what comes out yeah. afterwards. I'm of course like overgeneralizing. There are bad, strictly bad decisions that you could make by you know totally neglecting the scoring condition. But the more familiar I become the, with the game, uh, and and the more I'm able to like sort of create uh, just like a very basic and general like heuristics for kind of what I should be doing generally with regard to the scoring condition. Then it does feel like to take the next level forward in my understanding, and certainly. Uh, you know, we've been playing a lot on the app, so I've seen the kind of crazy scores people put up. Like, certainly there is an ability to 
improve and get better at this game. But it does seem like the only way you could take that next step forward is by studying the deck and knowing every card uh, to understand the probabilities. And that's something I have zero interest in doing. So that is a little bit of like a turnoff for me personally. And I think more generally, I think that is like a downside of the flip and write mm. genre in comparison to roll and write, which have a huge advantage, at least to me, in that we're all working with the exact same probabilities. You know, everybody can understand uh, with just a single, you know, 15 minutes of, of research or, or a chart or something of like what the probability is of rolling yeah. two dice. Uh, of what numbers you're gonna get and here it, you don't especially have with the all. way that a lot of flip and write games are historically designed with larger decks with more things going on that's exploring these pairings between these different options typically in cartographers the pairings or the options are literally on the card um but i i totally agree jake you could design a flip and write with a smaller deck that had easier so i don't think it's native to flip and rights but it's the shape they typically take when you see them break out well yeah, and the obvious comparison here is a game we've covered previously on the podcast, Welcome To, which the designer, you know, has does a really good job to simulate mm. dice with yeah. the cards, right? You 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 can just know intuitively that a seven will be more likely to appear in the deck uh, than a two or a twelve. And here, there's just nothing to indicate anything, right? You just have to assume uh, that you know, any given shape and any given feature type is exactly as likely as anything else. But unfortunately, like that isn't the case <laughs> because some different features will come out in different shapes than other ones. There isn't, uh, at least to my understanding, uh, a perfect symmetry between features and shapes. So you, you, until you know the deck, you might be like, okay, well, it'd be really great if a uh, you know, a forest came out in a in a plus shape right now. That doesn't exist. That just yeah. doesn't exist in the game. And you would have no way of knowing that without yep. doing the research. Uh, whereas in another, like in Welcome To, you could look at it and be like, yeah, I really need a eight. <laughs> and like you have very high confidence that there's going to be an eight in the deck. Yeah, and I, you, there's going to be people who listen to this episode that say, that's what I love about cartographers. Once you know the deck, it's so amazing how much you can plan for it. And I think that that's awesome. I love that you can play cartographers in such a way that you leave this perfect space for the the set of city tiles that you're going to place down. You you know the card, it flips, you plop it in, it feels amazing. But for me, I, it's not the decision space I'm going to chase. So it feels like there's this valley between those two mindsets uh, that's hard to bridge but I like it is cool, Jake, I think in a in a sort of different way that this game can operate in those two different ways. And the fuzziness of the decision space for the more casual play does a lot of heavy lifting and keeping the decisions interesting. So just interesting. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think actually, you know, maybe counter to what we're saying, like, oh, this game is like so hard to actually improve that. Like it also makes it a game that is yeah. perhaps better for casual play. Like it actually is creating a better first play experience because you can kind of just do whatever without worrying too much about it um, and don't have to like overthink things, which helps keep it, you know, whip, whip along nicely. So, you know, it, it's, I think it's just that what we are looking for specifically uh, is, is something that is more straddling that line uh, where you can have a good first play and also 
you know, it's easier to, to, to level up just by virtue of, of playing the game a few times and have those uh, elements where you're like, okay, now I'm like understanding yeah. things differently, which is not something I really experienced in my, you know, dozen or so plays. of. I will say maybe this is the best time possible to slot this in. And this is a point that I feel like is off the rails from what we typically discuss on decision space, but it's such a perfect match with cartographers that we'd be remiss not to say it. And I think that for me, part of the reason why cartographers has the audience that it has is the theme and the, the mechanics are the most perfect pairing possible. You literally, it has this like mimetic quality of you're a cartographer thematically and you are drawing on your map. And this is the most obvious observation about this game. So we can move on quickly, but I love it. It's fun. It's perfect. It's one of those things where it's like, oh my gosh, how did no one do this before? It's brilliant. Yeah, definitely. And I wonder, and this is also like off on a similarly off topic line of thought, but like, I love that aspect of the game. Like I really loved creating my map and I found the thematic like integration super fun. Um, And I wonder like how much different this game would feel if you weren't like Mm. drawing, you know, like the, the design decisions of like, okay, you, you actually like will draw the features on your map, which is exactly what's creating that mimetic yeah. quality, which I just Googled <laughs> means like imitating mimicry. <laughs> like you're doing something that feels like a representation of the other thing. Right. So like when, when kids go to a yeah. children's museum and they cook food with play food, it's a, it's mimetic play. It's like that same thing. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, I think like if this game didn't have that, if I, if I was like, taking tiles and you know putting them on my map this game would like i think it would fall off so no totally and even in our discord right we've been playing this game async within our discord community if you'd like to uh take a look at the decision space discord you can find a link to it in our show notes um we've been using sheets that we have on our phones and just drawing like jake said in the phone app and even that is close enough and there's so much joy in seeing everyone else's maps and just the the way other people draw their their maps is so fun. That's part of the joy of the game is seeing the little trees or the little monsters and how people's personalities come out in it. Um, and we're spending so much time on this because I think a real part of the joy of cartographers isn't its decision space. It's its thematic resonance. And you can't ignore it. It's, yeah. it's fantastic. And it leans into it perfectly, too. Here, draw an emblem if you'd like. Here, what's your title? What's what's your land called? It just hits checks all these boxes. It's great. Uh, absolutely, it's that and like that is my absolute favorite yeah. part about this game, and it is the thing that sets it apart from other roll and write, flip and write games. Um, but you know, if I wanted to play a game like strictly for the decisions, right, I would go to a different roll and write game, and I just think that's like worth pointing out. But if I was gonna be like oh, hey, I need to play, show a game to like get somebody brand new to board gaming, like interested in what board gaming can be in 2022. I think I would go for cartographers over a game that I personally like find more joy in the decision exploration. I think that's a great point. So I think that just puts it in a weird spot for us on this podcast about decisions and why, you know, you might feel like, okay, wow, Jake and Brendan are being really critical of this game, and yet Brendan gave it an 8, and I gave it a 7.5. I think like that is speaks to that. It's, like, it's genuinely fun to draw 
maps of things to draw on your little piece of paper. And that just doesn't come up in the exploration of a game's decision space where I feel like there, there's more. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think if we are going to pivot into what comes to mind for me and sort of the most important consideration because of the way that the board itself is designed is the scoring. How does the scoring inform the decisions that we're making, right? And I think I really like this, the way that the scoring cards are designed and it emphasizes planning. The fact that you score two scoring cards a turn and you're going to score them each one over the course of the game. The second that you randomize those cards, you're going to get one forest, one of uh, grasslands and water, one of cities, and one that has to do with shapes. Instantly has me thinking, okay, what's going to be the best way to plan for what's coming out in a way that creates this, it emphasizes, a, it's a game about strategic planning, which in some ways is kind of at odds at odds with the idea of like cartography, because I, you, the idea is like you don't know what's coming up, which is borne out in the cards coming out. But I think, to my mind, one of the weaknesses of the decision space of cartographers is that the interesting decisions are made as a collection of all decisions that you make not necessarily no one decision ever feels super interesting and meaningful um i would say that every time a card is flipped i feel like there's a pretty straightforward or closer to straightforward than not um choice between the two and for me that's partially what keeps it from being this perfect example of a roll and write game I really like the scoring mechanism. I'll say that off the bat. Um, it, it's uh, analogous to uh, mm. Isle of Sky does the same type of thing with a randomized scoring uh, set. And and also it does something really interesting with uh, tempo in the game in that at different points mm. you're caring about different things. Uh, so like that creates like some dynamism there that that wouldn't be there otherwise. Uh, in that you don't find in another more straightforward roll and write game mm. like Quicks, where he's like, you have the scoring, it's set from the beginning, and that's all you'll ever care about the whole time. Um, so I do think that's kind of fun, but I think it also like, I think the challenge I keep coming back to with the decision space is like, yes, you can plan ahead, you can do better or worse, but every single decision you make is just going to be good or bad based mm. on things that follow it um and i just think it's like it almost feels to me like a little bit of a trick uh and i think that that might be what makes my brain go to like the kind of junk food analogy uh which is like there are definitely moments where you can put a tile in that gives you a ton of points and you feel really smart and there are also moments where something comes up and it's like oh dang it like if i had done this uh, this differently uh, two turns ago or you know left this space here like then this would have been much better for me and it makes you feel dumb and usually those are two two experience in board games that like i really love that make me want to come back to it it's like okay yes i like learned something there and did something great or i've made a mistake i want to you know go back and do it again but here because of the random nature yeah. of what comes out did you actually do something smart when three turns later, you've left this perfect shape. Maybe yes, if you've, you know, studied the deck and memorized the probabilities. Uh, But assuming you haven't dove that deep into cartographers, you know, you probably just kind of got lucky, but the game is crapped in a way that the luck like feels to your brain. Like I totally agree, Drake. And I completely see where you're coming from. I think that 
it's so hard because like it is really fun and it's fun to win a game of cartographers and like knock it out of the park if you're playing solo on the app like your points come in well over 100 you're like i'm incredible at this game but like it's not it is a trick it's a little bit of a trick and on average the better you get the higher your score is going to be obviously this is a game where we don't need to keep saying this but the more you play this game the better you're going to be but because of the way that the cards are designed i i came to this realization there are two types and i think jake and i might do an episode on this overall at some point in the future because this kind of sparked a lot of thinking and discussion for both for me and i think for us and in our discord about scoring objectives in games and the way that these work is there's scoring objectives in games that are juxtaposed right you can do a or you can do b and your effort is going to go towards a or it's going to go to go towards b or they can be overlaid where uh you can pursue this objective or that objective and your effort towards objective c can be maximized through efficiency in terms of doing things well so what do i mean by this in cartographers that takes the form in two shapes one there's mountains which are this puzzle that are sort of overlaid over all other objectives in the game because whenever you enclose them you get a gold and gold is basically this really clever way of giving you more points the earlier you get them it just ends up being this elegant system great so that puzzles overlaid over the other puzzle going on and then three of the of the scoring cards in any given game the forest card the housing card and the water and grassland card are generally juxtaposed, right? If I go for forests, I'm probably not helping my cities. And if I go for water, I'm probably not helping my forests. There's exceptions to this, but on average, that's the case. And then the third one is always an overlaid scoring card. It says, uh, this one is the cauldrons. You're trying to leave little holes. Or this one gives you points for completely filling in diagonals on your board. And it doesn't care what terrain you use to fill in those shapes. So it's an overlaid scoring objective. I think that because of the the math of the game and there being these four trains, four scoring objectives, one of which relates to how you build things, it leans towards the decision space. I think this is what's leading to, Jake, us feeling the way we do. I think if there was more overlaid scoring in the objectives, we might feel less this way. But thank goodness the mountain puzzle is there because it, that's what's adding this backbone that keeps the decisions really interesting and the trade-offs in any given turn difficult. And I think that to me is some of where the skill comes in is playing into that mountain game. But I kind of wish I could play sometimes with more overlaid cards and fewer juxtaposed scoring cards. Because I think my games that go sour are the games where like the juxtaposed scoring just doesn't work. And they're in uh, like the A cards come at a weird time based on the cards that come out. And the whole game just feels like a floppy sandwich that I don't want to eat. Yeah, I think like maybe what you're reading into with the feel bad moments on this game is also has to do with the scoring mm. tempo, which is that like you, you score at four distinct points in the game, which makes certain draws of the deck, like incredibly impactful uh, where if you get a forest tile to be able one of the scoring cards gives you three points for connecting every forest or, or connecting forest mountains. to yeah. mountains so you, you get three points for each mountain that you have like connected to with with forests um and there can be these situations in the game where okay you know there's going to be one card left or two cards left in, in a scoring round and if one of those is a forest that's going to be great you're going to get 
six points because you'll get three points now and three points later in the game. Uh, but if it's not and the, the card after that is a forest, then, you know, you just get like, okay, well, I just lost six points there. And that opportunity cost of trying to go for forest would have been, you know, better spent doing something else. Uh, so, so it really is like the, these moments in the game that it really does distinctly feel like, okay, well, if those two things had been reversed. I had no way of knowing that, you know, I had to go down one path. Um, you lost the coin flip. And, and you lost the coin flip and, and it just doesn't feel good where if like there was something like, uh, y- y- like you said, like overlaid where it's like, okay, well, if that had been always mm. on, then you're not punished as bad for uh, the randomness in this game. So I think in that sense, like some of the, the juxtaposed scoring, as, as you put it, uh, design actually like feeds into like increase the randomness, which can lead to feel bad moments, but it can also lead to like, Heck yeah, I just spiked the exact card I needed. Uh, and that feels great yeah, when it and happens. Look, Cartographer is an incredibly successful game. So there's there's lessons to learn around prioritizing fun over interesting in games. And that's a valid critique of game design as well. Um, and I think Jake and I are just coming at this from a more somewhat more decision critical angle because of the nature of our podcast. Um, but I think the, yeah, I, I don't know. I I feel like there's room for there to be less fewer sour games in this design and cartographers should just be more fun and more interesting. Yeah, I, I definitely think so, too. I think it's possible. And I think, yeah, perhaps like uh, the scoring could be one way in which in which that was tweaked or, or maybe even just like, yeah, yeah. And, and who knows, you know, that's not really yeah, our job yeah, yeah. To, <laughs> to to point out like how games could be fixed, you know. Uh, you're a designer, you're a public designer, I'm not. So I'll, I'll leave that to the experts, you know, uh, and, and focus on our thing. But I, I do agree with you. And I think it might be a little bit of a false uh, equivalency yeah. or, or whatever, a false something to just say like fun and decisions are on opposite ends of the spectrum. You know, there, there are certainly ways yeah. that we can have. have Clearly both. they're not. We wouldn't have uh, a podcast on decisions in games if we felt that way. <laughs> yeah right exactly um all right so let's can we talk a little bit about the ambush cards i think that's like also one of the the places where cartographer sets it apart from a lot of other games in this genre and i think it's important to point those out because of course this is the most successful version of a game in this genre um to to my knowledge and so the ambush cards as as brendan explained in his rules overview it probably is that you can you have the opportunity to pass your maps one to the left or one to the right um and everybody will now draw these goblin cards on right on to somebody else's piece of art uh and those are negative points for every space surrounding it so Brendan, what do you think about these? What are your general thoughts on ambush cards and what they do to the decision space of this game or just otherwise fun? I feel of the like game? once again, I find myself wanting to talk about every reason I love ambush cards except for the decisions they create. <laughs> because they, <laughs> right. for me, ambush cards totally succeed for the player experience of the game and kind of make me feel like a stupid computer when I'm, when I'm the ambusher, when I've been past someone's sheet and I have to put something down. I feel like on average, there's a clear optimal place that it should go, or on average, there's a choice between two equally 
whatever they're the same amount pun- coin, coin flip, flip spaces, spaces depending on what else yeah comes out i next. feel what i want this to be is you pass me your sheet jake i get to spend a few minutes looking at your sheet and saying i'm an evil mastermind and this is really how i'm going to thwart jake's plan i i you know i carefully draw my monsters on the sheet and then i pass it back to you and i just get to look at your face as you look down and then horror see all of your plans fall apart but the truth is when an ambush card comes out jake can look at the stupid thing and be like oh it's a bugbear assault brendan's gonna put it right here and then i you're gonna pass it to me I'm going to fill it in. It's probably going to go right there. And then I pass it back to you. And you're kind of like, uh, that's annoying. Why'd you put a stick in my shoe? But it's not like I destroyed your whole plan. Um, But the moment's cool. And I like this mechanic. I just want it to be, I want there to be more interesting decisions and not to feel like a computer. What do you think, Jake? I completely agree. I think, I mean, you basically took the words out of my mouth. Like it is a really fun, exciting moment. Like there is like a visceral emotional (laughs) reaction to somebody else like writing on your work of art. It's like, Hey, I've been like working on that and now you're going to like take this and ruin it. And that like, that is real genuine fun emotion. It's a fun experience in the game, but it does not match with the amount of like weight of decision. You know, I I feel like in, in our, a game with the decision space people everybody put the ambush card spaces exactly where i expected them to um so yeah there's it, there isn't really i don't think opportunity to be to be clever in the placement but that doesn't mean it's not fun uh and i do think you know that is perhaps another space where uh you know this genre of games designers can continue to innovate in uh, of kind of creating these these more interactive moments. Um, I do like the pressure yeah. that the negative one spaces create. And I have found that sometimes the trade-off there in terms of, okay, the round is coming to a close. We flip an ambush card. There's one more turn. The perfect card flips. I had this other plan. Uh, do I just slot it into these ambush spaces because I don't want to get these negative ones rolling? It's round, maybe it's spring. So it's the, no, no, no. It's summer. So it's the second round of the game. What do I like? These could really add up if I don't deal with them. There's some interesting decisions there, um, but they're also kind of straightforward. I feel, like I feel like they're interesting decisions with like the caveat that you can just like sit down and like work out yeah, the math yeah, yeah, if you really yeah, want yeah. to. And which I, which something I've talked about at length on this podcast before of being like not a huge fan of. Um, but you know, if an ambush happens in the second round, you're like, okay, well, I could put this here and block out three negative ones. So that's going to be a net gain of nine points for me versus if I put this over here and I get, you know, one point around because I'm getting the mountain closed off. And this is also giving me three points twice. So that's seven points. Like, okay, so I'll just do the ambush. You know, I don't know that uh, it gets deeper than just doing the math really with the exception uh again you go back to it's like if i knew the deck front Mm -hmm. and back and i could start like predicting okay well like what's the probability that if i put this here that will you know then i'll be able to get a space that's going to fit into this next space that's going to like somehow increase the the point value for that space beyond the nine that i get for covering the ambush i mean i think that's where the game gets deeper um but to me that's not like the the rich, fun, exciting stuff that I, I go to games. OK, for. so then what about the overlaid objectives of mountains and temples? How do you feel about these systems, Jake? You know, I, I like the mountains because I, I agree. I think, you know, having that 
puzzle overlaid on top of everything so that you're not only just like looking at one thing there there's a little bit more intrigue in that and and you can also potentially like knock out two you know two birds with one stones when you're covering a temple and going for a scoring condition or sorry we get a mount cover up a mountain or surround a mountain i should say and that's also adding to scoring objectives like it feels nice i think that's like moments where you can sort of feel genuinely clever and that's kind of like where i've had the most fun like kind of improving at my heuristic understanding of like what to do with pieces in the abstract in this game i don't know what to really make of the temples i mean the temples are just like add extra restriction at a random time in the game with a random so the way it works is whenever a temple tie a temple card comes out then the next card has to cover up a temple uh it, it to me it feels like again it's just like inserting more randomness in the game you can kind of plan for for it by you know not covering up temples early so that you can have more options when it comes out later but then again late in the game you might actually prefer to have all your temples covered up so that you can't place anything and then you can use your one block of any color anywhere and actually get more points I think that tension, to me, that's where some of the most interesting decisions come from, which I think might be speaking too strongly about what I think are kind of interesting decisions around, do I cover up my temples or do I not early, right? Do I do I play, use cards that shouldn't be, that don't specify they have to cover temples on temples to create a late game where I get more single use, um, single use spaces? And I like that. I like trying to suss out strategically if this is a game to do that or not. Um, I, I don't know. How often did you lean towards Jake, like covering up temples when you weren't told by the game you must place on a temple spot? I think it, generally it wasn't something I had a huge issue doing if I was, you know, I wouldn't do it for no yeah. reason at all. <laughs> I guess I should say. If there's no no reason, I wouldn't do it. But if if I was like, you know, if the placing over one seemed profitable with scoring objectives or, or uh, unlocking a coin from a mountain early on, it wasn't something that uh, I, I was like too concerned about doing. And then I feel like at the end game, it was I didn't really feel punished or benefited too much from it in either yeah. case. So I think that's kind of where I'm sort of like, Again, I think it is interesting in theory, but I just wonder how much of it is like a trick because like what's going to be right and what's going to be wrong is going to be based on like the random sequence of cards. And the deck does just keep getting shuffled in. One design decision around the deck being reshuffled that I do like is the way that the ambushes work. In In the first season, round one, you have one card in the deck. If it doesn't come out, you just add another one to it, right? So then there's a greater chance in the next round you're going to get one of those. If you don't get it, you just add another. And if you don't get that, you add another. So then there is this like rising sense of tension as the game goes on and increased probability that, that one is going to come out or maybe two in a row. And I think that's cool. Um, I've had that happen a few times at the table where you just flip it and you're like, okay, ambush, we'll do that. Oh, ambush again. Oh my gosh. And then ambush again. And then all of a sudden that can kind of be, it's fun because then your board is yeah, full of fun. crap and you have to just play garbage man, cleaning up everything at the end of the game. Um, so like the design of this game yeah. is delightful. It is joyous, but. Yeah. Right. And again, that to me feels like a smart decision for creating like fun, rich and exciting gameplay 
but how much is is it adding to our decision we're just i mean i think we're just like saying the same thing over and over again in this podcast so i have a thing that i'm curious about jake which is i i really wonder if in the design of this game we've talked uh, at the start of the show you talked about how it would be interesting if you could know sort of how different shapes what the likelihood of them coming out was and the composition of the deck i do wonder if this design was tested the shapes are all over the place there's tetronomos right the classic tetris pieces that have four blocks all connected like the little l or the t shape or the bar uh, that everyone knows those are in this game but then there's also the cross shape so there's like three and then three uh, there's these longer l's that aren't two and then three stacked upon it but like two two to the side three three down three across three up not like the tetris one slightly bigger and i wonder if this game was ever tested with just tetronomos right like and so you had more of a sense of like okay i've seen this forest of this tetronomo um so i know that that one's not going to come out again and i wonder if it was just decided like no it makes more sense to just use this mix because it leads to more interesting trade-offs of creating these negative spaces that you don't fill in it's just i I don't know it's this like weird thing that i have on my mind it's like how would this have played with a different tile set on the cards and obviously this this tile set really works well right but i'd love to know how this game ended up with what it does have some of it might be the trade-offs in the cards too of needing bigger shapes and smaller shapes, which you can only get if you don't have all shapes of the same size like Tetronomos. I think another place where the game could feel a little bit tighter would be another overlaid mm. scoring around having empty spaces on at the yeah. end of the game. Of course, if there was like if you got negative one for each empty space or something, that would change everything about the game. It would have to be uh, fundamentally redesigned. But like something like that would increase the thrust of like the benefit of filling out your board efficiently and there there is some benefit of it depending on the scoring conditions but also you know as as we've discussed like there can be big benefits to not you know leaving small weirdly shaped spaces especially if uh ambush cards don't come out early um right so then at the late game you could perhaps be getting benefits as opposed to negatives, which is like a huge swing by leaving a lot of empty spaces all over your board. Uh, but you, of course, you don't know that until you get towards the end of round two uh, and, and you kind of have to start building towards it at the beginning if that's sort of the strategy you're going for. Um, so yeah, I think that too might make it feel like there's more clever placement uh, if it had kind of the patchwork yeah. thing, right? Where you're like trying to like do your best to fit pieces together. And here you don't really have to worry too much about it, which I think is another thing that makes it uh, really nice and pleasant for a first play experience. But like that just makes it there like less to learn. Totally. Yeah. As a closing thing, do you have a favorite scoring card or least favorite scoring card? Let's see. I I think like the ones I enjoy more are the ones that like feel more holistic. Like it cares about your whole board. So there's one that has to do with like uh, buildings where each red building type tile, each cluster of those, if they're surrounded by three mm. different uh, features, then there were three points each. So that kind of creates a dynamic where you want to have a board that has like a lot of small areas of buildings with like a variety of features surrounding. It. And I feel like that kind of is something that like spreads. So one out. of the overlaid red cards. Yeah, across all of the uh, red uh, of the decisions you're placing. The same with. Uh, the one where you have to complete yeah. diagonals because I feel like that one 
also does reward efficiency for uh, you know, not leaving gaps and placing tiles, which is which is nice. And and I mean, and maybe I'm being a little too harsh because it's fun that like some games are going to have that as a part of it, and other games not. Yeah, at all. I really like the diagonals one. Like you, I like all the overlaid ones are generally super fun. Even I've come around on the cauldrons, the one that wants you to leave empty, create empty holes on your board. Oh yeah, that it, one. It, it sort of inverts the decision space in a fun way. Um, yeah. I think we're kind of approaching the end of our conversation about cartographers. And I'm curious what after this conversation are your final thoughts? Like, do you still feel the same way? Uh, have, are you feeling about the game changed by sort of discussing it in, in this light or, or where are I you I definitely now? feel the same way. And I think cartographers is a game that some of the games that we cover on the show, I'm sort of say, I really enjoyed this and I probably won't play it anymore. And Cartographers is not that type of game for me. And I'm excited for the future times that I'll play Cartographers, but I will continue to seek out other roll and rights too. And it's not going to be sort of my go-to forever. I think right now that's still welcome too. It still remains my favorite roll and write. And I'll be searching for the game that could unseat that one. How about you, Jake? Yeah, I feel the same way. I Cartographers, just because of like what it is. And I think that really owes its to the theme and the thematic integration with the mechanics, with the drawing and the writing is a game I don't see myself ever turning down uh, a play of if offered it. But I just don't know that it'll be one that I'm going to be the one offering yeah. the majority of the time. And the other, the last thing I want to say is like we, I, I did a lot of plays on the app, which I think is a really great yeah. implementation of this game. And it, you know, maybe we should talk more about this before the very end. But like the app totally changes the nature of it in that it makes it like this solo challenge where you're playing against people from all over the world. And it cre- allows you to do it in three different ways. You can do random uh, tile play random like order of cards that come out uh, and random objectives, or you can do set objectives. So everybody's playing with the same objectives and random cards coming out, or you can do set and set. So everybody's playing with the exact same objectives in the exact same order of cards. And what's really been fascinating to me with my plays is that you can play the set and set one like over and over again, if you wanted to, to try and get a higher score. So if everything we've said about like, okay, well, this game has like so much randomness that like reduces the decision. It is interesting that there is a way to play this game as like a purely no look, no luck puzzle and i think that's honestly where i've spent the most time is like in learning to order these things and like so i know exactly where the ambush is going to be so i can like pre-fill that area in and then the ambush always goes exactly in the same spot and that's kind of been just like a, a totally different like it's not really playing a game of cartographers at all at that point uh, but it's been a really fun like solo puzzle to have as an app on my phone so i would i would really recommend uh checking that out if uh, you know any of this at all sounds intriguing yeah, to agreed. You. it's very relaxing to play a game of cartographers or two before bed that's it for this week's episode of decision space brendan thank you as always for joining me if you want to dig in deeper to this conversation about cartographers about flip and write and roll and write games in general and share you know what are some of your favorites please join us in the decision space discord it's our community of over 100 people uh chatting every single day in an online chat room about games you can find the link to that in the description of this podcast in the show notes 
We are also on Twitter at Decision SPA. Brendan is at Burnside BH, and I'm at Jake Freed. We also have a Patreon for the show. If you want to support us, throw us a dollar or two every single month um, to help keep the lights on around here, help us uh, produce this show and make it better uh, as we continue to grow and improve as podcast hosts. That means the world to us. And, And thank you so much to everyone who's already chosen to support this show. And we're super close to getting 10 patrons and those will be our founding members, our first crew on our ship. And once we do hit 10, we will read out everyone's name as an extra special thanks on the show. So if you love Decision Space and want to support it, that's something you could do and be a part of. And as always, we want to thank Hembry for our intro and outro song, Reach Out. See you next week. Take care.